Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Gigabit Nation. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and we are here to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get broadband everywhere it needs to be. Yesterday, the FCC passed an order that allows their Lifeline program to support broadband. Uh, we should expect there will definitely be involvement by libraries because libraries have been uh, leaders in digital inclusion efforts for a number of years. Uh, today, our guest is Don Means, who has uh, been very heavily involved with advocating for libraries as a um, very uh, important uh, means of getting broadband into communities. Uh, I had a spoke uh, with Don uh, several months ago as part of my uh, research for my latest report, um, Libraries, Broadband Leaders of the 21st Century. Uh, he has a lot of great information, which I'm sure you will find valuable. So here is that interview. What's hap- what is happening or has been happening with um, libraries and getting more libraries connected and so forth since the last time we spoke, which I think is about mm, a year or so ago? Well, quite a bit. Uh, the, the biggest change is the result in the upgrade of the uh, the Universal Service Fund's E-rate program, mm-hmm. adding uh, an additional bill and a half a year to providing connectivity for libraries and schools. And then in addition to that, uh, more billions are being found by retiring old legacy uh, technologies that have been supported under that program and directing those to internal connections basically Wi-Fi, interior Wi-Fi connections. Mm -hmm. You you can have a fantastic connection. You can have a gigabit to the building, but if it doesn't get to the people in the building, it's it's useless. So these two two changes in the last year represent uh, a major boost to the program and to the connectivity, and according to the FCC, should enable, pardon me, should, should enable them to reach their goal of uh, gigabit connectivity to anchor institutions in every community in the country by 2020. It's one of the goals in the National Broadband Plan. It's probably the only one uh, that the FCC actually has the, the power to implement. The others relate to sort of market encouragement types of goals that, it, that it's trying to accomplish, but it doesn't have you know, control enough to do that as it does with the, with the E-rate program. That's the biggest change. Mm-hmm. So now, there were also rules changed in the E-rate program so that um, I think before it was very, very, very structured in the terms of what you could not do with the E-rate money, meaning if it went to the schools or it went to a library, um, it had to basically go and and, and that um, it would provide coverage just for that school or that library 
and uh, in, in the, uh, the school context, you know, the, the there are times when, you know, school's out that you couldn't make it that available to the, the, the public at large. Now, didn't the, the E-rate reform, part one, uh, to, to address some of that thing, some of the things? Yes, that was a point where I believe schools could uh, keep their facilities open after hours and uh, allow the public access, I think. I'm not totally clear on that particular provision. It's an interesting one, but not as significant as some of the other bigger changes that were made over the last uh, two and three years. Uh, Previously and originally, providers all had to be commercial carriers. Uh, And so that was changed to allow uh, state uh, education networks or municipalities to be uh, eligible providers under E-rate, a big change. And then the uh, another significant change was to allow the use of dark fiber. Uh, this uh, put a lot of assets into uh, proximity of you know ready use rather than having to build uh, uh, deploy new fiber bills. So those two things were significant changes, and now more money out of the program. Uh, also, streamlining has been a big uh, barrier to participate in the program. And for libraries, filtering is a barrier for a lot of libraries. Librarians really do not take to uh, any kind of censorship. And yet, under the uh, CIPA Act, they're required to filter uh, you know, undesirable information as as it's uh, defined in the statutes. So a lot of libraries pass on that out of principle. And then uh, uh, other libraries uh, don't take advantage of the, of the program to the proportion that schools do. Uh, roughly, we're talking about an eight-to-one ratio of facilities of schools to libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and libraries take less advantage proportionally than schools because of the complexity of the application process and that libraries are often smaller entities and don't have the staff, uh, the administrative capabilities to to process fairly detailed and difficult uh, paperwork. So a lot of times they just let it go. When they don't, it can make a huge difference. Uh, these These subsidies take the form of discounts so that whatever the the service is that then the institution has a discount that is determined by the the income levels in the community the the school lunch program i think is the metric they use so the discounts can be as low as say 20% or as high as 90% and uh so that's that's really a big deal uh for uh you know, paying for services. But a lot of these services are very old services, like T1s. Uh, California just did a, a, the state library did a survey uh, of the libraries in the state and found that 27% of the libraries in California are running T1 lines. And this technology is, you know, at least 15 years old. 
and and it's still very expensive. Uh, a lot of these places are paying five, eight hundred, a thousand dollars a month for for a one point five megabit service, but they're not paying that much. You know, maybe they're paying ten percent of that, uh, but it's still you know the the system is paying for it. So these are this is uh, an area where there's a lot of money that's kind of being well wasted, uh, not spent well and uh, could be used to support investment in fiber, which is, I think, the goal that everybody understands is what we want. Now, is there, is there I don't know if you know, but is there a way that um, libraries and schools are able to get better um, quality networks um that that use what what amounts to um more powerful technology for less cost because you know if you had to deal with um you know t one lines i mean you're right it's very expensive um of a way to build a network and so can can schools move from you know, whatever might have been the older technology, can they upgrade to new a newer technology um, going forward to try to get some, you know, some savings into the process in some way? Well, I think that's what this uh, these changes about. Uh, they're intended to provide more money uh, to the to the schools and libraries to make those upgrades and. Uh, achieve those kinds of uh, performances. So, uh, so yes, indeed. And as we saw from the uh, from the Recovery Act, where uh, billions of dollars were allocated for what was termed uh, comprehensive community infrastructure projects that were designed to connect anchor institutions, libraries, schools, health clinics, and other types of, of community facilities uh, as what uh, has been called, uh, uh, have been called intermediate endpoints. So they're priority endpoints for connectivity, but at the same time they create, uh, have the potential to create uh, a middle mile uh, which can be used to support uh, last-mile interconnections, assuming that it's open, which was a requirement of that program, the Broadband Technology Opportunities Program, BTOP, under the Department of Commerce. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were about 100, and well, this is a, uh, just to digress a little bit, but it's more background on how to the, the evolution of, of connectivity for these anchor institutions. That program started off, uh, with a plan to select some, I don't know, a couple of dozen maybe uh, towns to uh, fund, you know, entire bills, complete uh, fiber to the home or or whatever very fast uh, broadband could be managed to every uh, premise in a community. But it was pointed out in part of the organization that, that we're uh, part of, Schools, Health, and Libraries Broadband Coalition, uh, D.C.-based advocacy group, 
uh, pointed out that that, that that money could be much better spent connecting schools, libraries, and other anchor institutions. And uh, the NTIA, which was administering the program under uh, the Department of Commerce, changed from the first phase quickly to this uh, so-called infrastructure uh, this comprehensive committee infrastructure approach and ended up funding 120 something of these open middle mile projects and connecting I don't know many how many thousands of anchor institutions and at the same time uh, making these new middle mile networks available for last mile investors and interconnect agreements and since then there have been over 800 agreements signed by some kind of last mile provider wired or wireless to hook into these uh, middle mile networks and then provide services to homes and businesses. So this model uh, has proven to be very effective at stimulating full market build out while containing uh, the risk because you're, you could almost, you could justify such a project if it only connected the anchor institutions, but you have this double justification that you've uh, enhanced and extended the infrastructure and taken a big step towards you know, uh, total uh, connectivity in a whole market. So uh, that's that, how that goes forward uh, without, we're not looking for more of those kinds of uh, uh, programs from the federal government, but we're starting to see it happen now at the local and state level. Uh, notably, uh, Kentucky has just adopted that very, that very model and is building a statewide middle mile uh, infrastructure. And they're financing this. They have outside financing, but the, the underpinnings are the, uh, the uh, guaranteed uh, contracts from the anchor institutions at pretty much, as I understand it, uh, the rates they're paying today for these, you know, more uh, established, if not legacy systems, that if they can commit to those levels of uh, payment, that uh, then it will uh, provide the funding to build out a new fire around the whole state that then would have the same effect of stimulating new last-mile investment. We're seeing this at, at, at the local level and other cases, and it's a it's an approach that uh, we and uh, uh, and others are advocating nationwide as a way to uh, try to catch up <clears throat> with the rest of the world in our in our broadband capacity, which, as you know, is uh, trailing uh, quite a few countries in our price and performance. Hmm. That is true. That that is true. Now, if I look at the um so we got the big picture of what's going on and, and uh, with the middle mile networks and so forth. Um, let's talk about the role of the library because I was thinking the last time you and I have spoken at whatever conference conference we were at, um, you know, it's you were trying to advance the idea to get more people you know, rallied around the idea that the library as a center of knowledge within a community is, in some respects, the ideal edifice in which you can build 
uh, a, a hub, basically, uh, uh, um, to, to facilitate the, the communication from that hub out to the neighborhoods. Now that's still the the overall you know feeling about the uh, you know the library as as sort of central conduit of information. So subsequently, it's a place that uh, touches a lot of people in an, in, a, in a in a community, and so we should look at trying to expand on the capabilities of the library to facilitate um, communication of of knowledge. Well, yes. I mean, this is not a new uh, notion. This is not a new role. This is, a, this is an ancient institution, and acting as a uh, hub of knowledge in a community, community defined at whatever scale you want, is uh, is a longstanding role. The the sixteen thousand five hundred something uh, library facilities in the U.S. Uh, we see as natural community technology hubs or ICT hubs, information communication technology hubs, uh, growing out of this uh, existing role. A lot of people forget that that libraries have introduced new information technologies uh, for a long time. I mean, we can, you can look at books themselves as a new information technology. And, and many people had their first their first experience of broadband at a library. There was a lot of talk in the in the late nineties about this, you know, this broadband thing. Everybody was doing dial up and others were saying, Well, you need to get broadband. It's you know, you get you know more bits per second. It'd be like a straw and a fire hose, all these kind of uh, metrics and graphics that just are generally meaningless to most people. But uh, libraries uh, were some of the earlier adopters of broadband. People could go there, get their hands on it, and had an experience of streaming media, uh, as it was generally called in those days, like a, a radio station from their hometown on the other side of the country coming through, coming through the internet. We don't give it a second thought today, but it, but in the nineties, that was a really big deal. And the point was not so much that it was a big deal that you could do that, was that people could experience it. Rather than hearing or reading about something, they could get their hands on it and feel a, a service or an experience that they could relate to and want. And they could say they thought it was cool. It was cool. And they go, oh, I, that's what I want. Whatever that is, I want that at home. And so it's a it's a case of libraries being playing the role of, of testbed and, and demo site and actually demand drivers for, for new services and technologies. It's a natural role because libraries uh, are community uh, shared resources. You know, I can't afford or much less house all the books that are in the library. So I hold them in common with my neighbors uh, and we share them. It's the same principle on uh, other emerging kinds of technologies. Uh, the, one of the new sort of uh, happenings at libraries is the so-called makerspace. So libraries can acquire these 3D printers that might be beyond the, the price or, or comprehension of a lot of homes, and then people can go in and play with them, learn about them, and 
decide if it's something they want to invest in themselves or just use from time to time at the library. There might be other devices. Of course, printers have played that role in libraries for a long time. So uh, most of the people in the country are, are libraries. The majority of the people are, have, have cards, which means that they've, they've used the library uh, in the last year. And uh, of those, in terms of Internet access, uh, tens of millions of people access the Internet in the library. Uh, the, the estimates vary between 50, 80 million people uh, access the Internet in the library. It's, it's a huge number. And then of those, maybe a fourth solely rely on the library for or Internet access, I mean, completely. So... Uh, People that do use the internet understand how valuable it is, and uh, and life without it is is difficult to imagine. Uh, and having a place that that uh, you can reliably get access is a very important thing to a lot of people. In mm -hmm. two thirds of the communities, libraries are the only provider of no fee internet access. Two thirds of all the communities in the country, so they play a really strong role for. Uh, access, basic access. Uh, they also have uh, emerging roles in, uh, well, a big one is, is in e-government. So every agency at every level of government is spawning applications, and they don't look alike and they don't run alike. Uh, even if you have a connection, they can be daunting to navigate these uh, public services. Uh, and if you don't have a connection, well, you know, who are these services for? In the way of software, you've, you start out automating, you know, a paper process, but then you discover there are things you can do with software you can't even do with paper. And so the, a lot of these new public services, these new taxpayer uh, uh, paid for services are for whom? You know, they're for people that are connected. So it's one thing for Amazon to create services that are only available to people who are connected. It's quite a different matter for a local, state, or even the, the federal government to create services that are not of, without assuring access to those services. So the only answer these agencies have is to go to the library. That's it. That's the only thing they have finally to say uh, about how you access these public services, these online uh, government services. So we see the library as not just an access point, but a place where there's a human being, a person uh, that uh, can help you navigate this, this fairly daunting array of uh, online government services, the, the human face of e-government, if you will. And another uh, uh, emerging role is in uh, disaster response. So libraries are places that people think of when when the lights go out and they stay out for a little while, for whatever reason, uh, as a place to go to, to find out what's happening, maybe to get a connection, maybe to uh, uh, charge their, their phone if the, if the cell system is still working, as it was not after Katrina in New Orleans, everything was out. And people went to libraries, even though the libraries didn't have any kind of backup <coughs> excuse me, communication capability, people started showing up with... Uh, with Wi-Fi routers and portable generators and just setting up ad hoc hotspots that began to provide, you know, some level of communication capability. Uh, 
So libraries are starting to plan for this and uh, uh, prepare, have, have backup power, uh, and looking for redundant communications capabilities. So there are a number of new roles that libraries are playing as, as the world changes, as technology keeps, keeps uh, changing the environment we live in. Mm -hmm. Now, if we, uh, as a as a as a um, country, decide that the role of the library as the hub of knowledge um, is, makes sense, doesn't that require some additional uh, monetary and other resources? in order to boost up the capability of a library to become that central hub, hub of knowledge? Well, it's, you know, the, the way you describe it implies that knowledge is contained within the library. So, of course, that's, that's not uh, accurate. But it's an access point to reach information, right. and so it's a it's a it has changed with the digitization of information, uh, which used to be confined to what the materials were that a library could uh, uh, afford and curate and hold within its uh, within its building. The arrival of the internet, of course, as uh, has globalized all that information. It still remains a, uh, a, a daunting challenge to try to navigate all of that. The large majority of people are, are uh, happy with you know whatever shows up on the first uh, search page when they enter a term or a phrase or whatever, uh, to or, or just go to Wikipedia as far as that goes. Mm -hmm. But for scholars, for people that are looking for greater depth, they often need uh, some assistance in finding sources of information. And I think this is increasing. It's it's obvious. It's more obvious among uh, academics, but uh, I think this is increasing as a uh, as an opportunity uh, where people look. Uh, more deeply for a certain kind of information to ask for assistance or to access certain kinds of databases, which libraries do, in fact, uh, license and provide uh, for uh, for patrons. So um, they represent the same kind of uh, place to access information uh, and also the use of libraries by people who who don't go to the libraries is, is increasing. People are increasingly connecting to the library and through the library to find things that they want, whether it's you know ebooks or other kinds of e-materials. Uh, this this kind of usage is climbing rapidly. So the the role is is more of a of an access hub than a repository. I think this is a this is a, a pretty significant change. And also libraries as places where people can go and learn or, or uh, uh, gather and 
so there's, there's a, a trend in more types of spaces within a library for different kinds of activities. I mentioned the maker space before, mm -hmm. meeting rooms, presentation spaces, uh, uh, auditoriums. Uh, you know, if you can if you can manage it, uh, the the classic kind of living room environment. People really appreciate a quiet, calm place that they can think or read. Uh, um, and uh, so it's libraries are unique in that they don't have a specific uh, charter that they're that they're bound by. Right. Every other public institution, you know, you, you, you do this. You're a health clinic, you're a school, you're you know, a fire station. You have a really specific charter, but libraries can basically do anything your communities want them to do. They're almost invariably locally funded, and so uh, the communities are generally free to um, have their libraries perform whatever services they want. Maybe they want to. Maybe they want a tool library where you can go and check out, uh, you know, uh, tools, chainsaws, and hose, and different kinds of things. These are these are all emerging as variations on the on the the, the shared resource principle uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, of course, libraries have a a deep tradition of what they do provide books is you know is the one everybody thinks about and and that's great uh, but they don't have to do that um, there is one library that I was reading about in in South Texas a, a new library they opened up uh, bookless I mean with no books everything was electronic to space and e-materials and no and no books that's what they wanted to do so fine, they can do it. It's that flexibility that allows libraries to be a natural uh, laboratory for the community to experiment with different types of activities, and services, and resources. Mm -hmm. But uh, wouldn't you want to have a, I don't know, some sort of game plan that wouldn't necessarily have the force of law uh, way of the way of explaining explaining it explaining it, but um, doesn't have having some sort of structure that says um, you know with what we know about the internet and how things work and this that and so forth, there should be a certain capacity, a certain uh, uh, I don't know backup systems and. Uh, you know, some some sort of guide plan, plan. Because on the one hand, if you say it's um, it's open flexibility, which is you know good in itself because people can make it what what they want. But if you really wanted to like move up to another two or three levels of um, of utility as a uh, as as an anchor institution, um, isn't that going to require then some amount of money or some amount of resources or something to kind of move it down that that path. You, you see what I'm coming from? It's like saying, you yeah. know, we've got... Yeah, but you started that question with, if I want. And so that's really the key there. What, uh, what you want, what your community wants, determines what kind of resources and structure and everything else that, that you need. 
fortunately, it's identified as a as an institution that has certain uh, privileges. Uh, one is a subsidy under the Universal Service Fund, and also uh, uh, often uh, <coughs> there's a state uh, support for for this kind of an institution. Uh, but as far as kind of leading edge technologies, uh, I think personally, I think that's a great strategy. I think libraries should be, you know, at the forefront of emerging technologies that they should be showing capabilities and testing them out uh, for their utility and usability in their environments where they are. And, you know, libraries are as different as communities, uh, from big to small, really small and really big. Uh, and so there's no, there's no standard for what they, uh, what they need. Uh, and so you, you have to figure that out. But the opportunity to figure that out, I think, is a really important exercise, this kind of ongoing reinvention of libraries. Because it has such a range of, of capabilities and opportunity, and the, the people that it serves, you know, what they say, the, the, the motto of the library is open to all. I mean, who says that? Uh, you know, that's not out for your wallet or your, or your soul, as they say. Uh, you know, so a library, a librarian in particular, uh, will help a, a patron, a person that walks in, with almost anything they ask for, you know. Presuming it's mostly legal, they'll they'll do whatever they can to help you, whatever it is, and and they won't even ask you who you are. You walk into a library, nobody even asks you if you need anything. They just wait for you to ask them for some kind of assistance. They don't even put it on you that you're, uh, you know, that you have to identify yourself. Now there there are certain things that you may need to be a member of the library to you know use. Services and privileges like checking out ebooks or checking out books in general. You need an account. You need to be a member. But uh, generally speaking, uh, it's it's come and go, uh, which is kind of amazing. And so the idea that uh, the library can has such a wide range of potential uh, support services and actual implementation what the library actually does and, and offers and looks like, and figuring out what that should be is, we think, is a, just an ideal activity for the community to think about what it wants and what it's going to be and where it's going. Uh, this kind of laboratory idea for a place for, for ongoing reinvention. And because of the rate of technology change, if anybody thinks that they're kind of got it figured out, uh, you know, they're kidding themselves because whatever you think you know today, you know, two days from now, it's liable to become poste as a song. But then that does, doesn't that then say that you have to have some sort of source of training uh, budget and equipment because um, you need to, if you're going to say we're going to be this hub that brings this technology in and people will be able to experience it, you have to have, um, you know, you, you, you've got well, to have... Well, sure, sure. Yeah, sorry. I, if I 
gave a wrong impression. This is a, this is an enterprise, like any enterprise. It has to have a plan, it has to have a budget, and it has to have funding sources. So most libraries exist as uh, departments of city and county government and are funded through the same tax base as the other uh, departments uh, of, the, of the local government. Some operate as independent districts uh, that cross various uh, jurisdictions and may have their own uh, uh, taxing uh, ability. Uh, but generally speaking, they're uh, their departments of a, of a city or a county government. And so in the, in the same way, somebody has to make the case for, for justifying a budget, and that budget articulates all the, all the items and, and the rationale behind it. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's the same as, as any other institution. Mm-hmm. Enterprise, public or private, you have to have, you know, a plan. You have to have... Uh, a cost structure and a budget, and, and you should have some specific uh, goals and services that you're going to provide. So, so maybe in that case, or in that looking at it from that perspective, is what's needed then is some sort of um, I don't know a way of thinking or a set of questions, uh, some way that. Uh, allows for the individuality of the community but has a path that says, okay, you need to consider this factor and this and so forth and so on, and what would you like to be and what would you want it to be, you know, in two years and that kind of thing. I mean, it's all part of the plan, but I guess, you know, is it possible that, you know, that it can be kind of like a universal guidebook of, you know, just, the, you know, the questions that you need to ask in order to um, to come up with an answer, to come up with a solution, a game plan, or what have you, right? Because I, I, I tend to reject anything that says, you know, here, follow these ten steps always and forever, and everybody will be successful, right? I find that that's yeah. you know, really, you know, unlimited, unlimited in terms of creation sure. of problems, I guess. But... Yeah. Um, but at the same time, having sort of a, you know, that you think about this, 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 and this is more of a, um, uh, I don't know, a different approach, I think, than the way people that want to try to just create a nine list, a uh, list of, uh, you know, do do these things and move and get move forward. And um, well, that it's uh, it's a it's a good point, uh, and there are. Volumes, reams of books written about uh, libraries, the future of libraries, uh, and also about uh, processes for managing, improving, and even reinventing libraries. So there's a lot of material out there. Uh, this falls. The responsibility, I think, is the key to the, the uh, to the question, and this falls to the librarians who should be. Uh, conversant in these processes and this, uh, these these use cases which you might draw from uh, that would uh, allow them to lead a process, and then they need they need support from the community outside of just the, you know the government. They need the involvement of community members who serve on their uh, on their boards, their trustees, their 
they're friends of the library, library foundations, uh, you know, the communities have to recognize the value and the potential value of their libraries, become engaged, uh, participate in the, the ongoing visioning and revisioning and assessment of libraries and library services, and then advocate for uh, full funding of these uh, of these budgets. So it's a it's a dynamic process. I don't think there's a cookbook for it. Uh, I think there's an attitude uh, that is about um, design and reinvention that I would say would be a uh, a desirable kind of universal approach, uh, even as that allows a, a wide variance of of techniques and, and processes for accomplishing it. But we as a society are, are heading full speed into a technology future that we can't predict. Uh, I mean, we, didn't, we didn't predict the Internet. And, you know, I'm definitely from the pre-Internet era, pre-web especially, and, uh, you know, and I grew up on all kinds of science fiction and that wasn't in any of it. <laughs> so uh, Part of the we're, we're just inventing faster than we can, can can really absorb the impact of the results of the technology. We create the technology, and the, and the technology recreates us. It shapes our environment, and that shapes our behavior, if not our actual uh, physiologies and our, and our uh, psychologies. So... You know, I think people in general are kind of struggling with this this accelerating rate of change, and libraries are are just ideal places to think about this stuff, to talk about it, and to deal with certain elements of it in practice. What's mm -hmm. the right age to hand a, a electronic device to a, to a child? What kind of rules for managing that? I mean, you can read a federal guidelines book, and maybe that will help you out. Or you could convene some sort of a group at the library and discuss it among your neighbors, your, you know, the, the, the other parents, the, uh, the toddlers or in school, all of those kinds of things uh, that people are trying to cope with. The library is an ideal place to convene the discussions, not just on something like that, but you know, wider discussions on community technology policy, what kind of information system should the city have, what kind of protections for public information should the city or county implement. There's a whole range of technology policy questions that uh, can lend themselves to uh, uh, the library. Many libraries have been convening discussions around, you know, community networks uh, or one example we're in Kansas City where uh, Google Fiber first deployed, community meetings were held at the library to discuss what the potential impacts of this, this new service would be, and to have you know, the widest group of participation uh, in a place that is perhaps the most trusted institution in our communities. But now I look at that and say, you know, yes, that, that makes sense, but does there a certain amount of sort of political reality that kind of rears its ugly head 
because I don't know if libraries have a whole lot of political clout. And so with Lind with with you know libraries um even be able to get a get a seat at the table because I, I, I sort of I mean I, I see where you're you know you and a lot of other people even myself coming you know coming at this thing and saying you know the libraries are the the interview the, the great spot to go and sort of be a knowledge front to kind of move this discussion along but on on the political side you know I think of you know who has you know the power within the, the community and and so forth, and so are are libraries going to be able to assert themselves as a leader of this kind of discussion? Do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't think it's we can see libraries as political institutions. These are you know these are civil servants. These librarians, so almost by definition, they have to. Uh, uh, they can't be political advocates. They can be champions of certain kinds of policies, like related to uh, free speech and right of private inquiry, and can defend these. You know, mightily they do. This is a, this is another underappreciated uh, aspect of, of libraries. They're at the you know the front line of day-to-day champions against uh, restrictions of expression, uh, free expression, and, and the right of private inquiry. Um, you know, we can talk about the ACLU defending expression, but, but uh, libraries do it everywhere, every day, and mm-hmm. they are, in that sense, unsung heroes. But as far as agitating for, uh, for, I don't know, public investment or, or whatever kind of a, uh, you know, a topic, we wouldn't we wouldn't expect them to to necessarily play that role. Even like in the case of you know an infrastructure conversation, they don't they don't have to be subject experts. They can simply be sort of guarantors of a of an op- a fair open discussion as conveners rather than rather than subject matter leaders. And so, uh, this is a valuable service to be able to provide a, a neutral environment for these civic discussions on different kinds of. Uh, Projects or, or public policies of really any type. So, um, so I, I don't think there's uh, they don't they don't have to be, and are not likely to be uh, politically active or politically powerful. This is this is going to come from the community. This is going to be from uh, people who appreciate the library, can see what the library is capable of, and are they're advocating for that in the in the political process, but not the libraries and the librarians themselves. Hmm. I, 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 I mean, I, I hear where you're coming from. Um, I sort of wonder about the, um, I don't know, the, 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 with the net effect be that, you know, a lot of these ideas may get started but they might not necessarily follow through because sure. you know just the nature like of like everybody else. <laughs> you yeah. know, there's a, there's a I said there's a wide range of of types of libraries. There's also a wide range of librarians with their own talents and inclinations. So 
you know, like with every profession, every institution, you're going to have leaders, you're going to have followers, you're going to have people, you know, kicking and screaming and, you know, the whole gamut. So it's a, it's, it's an organic, ongoing, evolutionary process that uh, we think benefits from encouragement and support and, uh, and, and giving people a little uh, boost can often have them uh, make the difference for them uh, doing something significant or having an opportunity pass by. So mm-hmm. I guess you would say uh, uh, you know, opportunity at the margin. So now from your, uh, from your observation, um, what's the likelihood that a lot of people in, in, in any given sort of neighborhood community will, you know, the light will come in on and people will start to see this as a logical solution. In other words, if I look at broadband, right, people are starting to realize there's an economic development aspect and then there's an education aspect. To a lesser degree, um, I think people aren't fully aware of the potential on the on the medical and healthcare side, right? It's not. I mean, there's 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 opportunity and what have you, but I think a lot of people haven't grasped it yet, like the full extent of what it might be. And I'm wondering if libraries kind of fall into that category, in the sense of, um, you know. No one's really thinking about broadband libraries. They should be, and sure. in certain places sure. they are. Sure. But yeah, in certain places they are. But this is classic. Uh, libraries are often taken for granted by their communities. You know, it's just it was always there, and they just presume it's always going to be there. It did stuff. It's still doing stuff. I more or less know what it does. It means something or doesn't mean anything. A lot of people take libraries for granted. A lot of people don't even get libraries. They don't, you know, if I if I want to know something, I'll just search online. If I want a book, I'll one-click at Amazon. So that's the way, you know, many people uh, see the libraries. They just they don't they don't get it. Uh, how mm. most people do, uh, especially people with children, preschoolers, after-schoolers is the most common place for kids to go after school. Uh, to, to, to study, uh, get access, and also just have a quiet place and a safe place. Often it's a big deal. Uh, you know, homeschoolers growing fantastic rate uh, you know, uh, every year. Uh, libraries are indispensable to this population. Then, you know, out-of-schoolers, people like me, you know, go back to to uh, uh, pursue some some avenue of uh, study because I need a I need a space and maybe some of the resources they may have. So uh, people are going to have all kinds of ideas about the, what the library can do or what the library is about. So in that case, I say it is up to the library to uh, to demonstrate its uh, uh, its entrepreneurship, uh, its innovation, uh, like. Well, right now, a project that we're involved in involves the use of a new uh, radio spectrum that's been made available as a result of the digital TV conversion, TV white space. This is unlicensed spectrum in the TV bands uh, that's just like Wi-Fi. Nobody owns mm-hmm. it. Everybody uses it, shares it. But it has the capability to transmit data miles away, you know, broadband, wireless broadband over miles, 
And so libraries are starting to uh, uh, adopt this technology that very few people have yet heard of to support remote hotspots as a kind of a wireless backhaul to set up library Wi-Fi hotspots in public places like parks and shelters and playgrounds and, and uh, community centers, you know, anywhere that it's uh, useful for people to access, uh, you know, uh, basic uh, uh, Wi-Fi. And so the, the, the idea then that, uh, that the library is using a new technology to physically extend itself out into the community is a pretty stunning proposition, an example of this kind of innovation and, uh, and demonstration capabilities for emerging uh, uh, information communication technology we're talking about. This is in the context of a, of a, a global uh, project to connect the uh, the four billion people, four out of the seven and a half billion people in the world are not yet connected to the internet, and so there's a a, a a new feeling that the internet is a basic service. Some say a human right, and that people should have the opportunity to participate in this global digital conversation, but they need some kind of affordable access to do that. And one response to that challenge is to use this TV white space to connect community hubs, the same idea of the hub, right? So it's, maybe it's not your portable phone everywhere you go, but in a lot of places, you know, these are just not happening. Cell towers are expensive. So, uh, so this, this idea of using TV white space to light up uh, the world's 320,000 libraries as nearby access points where people can go and get access and help. Help is an important part of, for first-time users, as people may recall in their own first uh, uh, beginning use. And so that combines a new capability with the traditional role of the library of helping people access information with a, a, a very low-cost and new kind of amazing communication capability and looks like it's part of the answer to how these billions of people uh, can begin to get connected and appreciate what it might do in their lives or decided, you know, it's not for them, however mm -hmm. else. So that's, uh, that's a pretty exciting development and uh, something we're very involved with with the uh, Gigabit Libraries Network. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that um, uh, with changes with the, with E-rate and so forth, will they be able to uh, harness the potential uh, and make it a reality of the white space? In other words, do we uh, can, can this is new technology in a sense, but you know, in the way that the E-rate program is working and so forth. Do you think that it can facilitate the adoption of white space technology? Because you do have to have uh, the right equipment and so forth. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, it's like a wide open, you know, it's a new frontier within broadband. And broadband itself is a new frontier for a lot of people. But, you know, has some of that, you know, the ability to harness some of that potential of the white space uh, you know, be resident in the FCC or somewhere else. No, we think we think absolutely it's appropriate. Uh, 
uh, under under E-rate. There's uh, there's a range of uh, definitions that need to be negotiated uh, or modified, but the spirit of uh, connectivity from a library, the idea that uh, uh, the citizenry has access to information for educational purposes is only enhanced by the, the ability of libraries to extend themselves, to extend their physical access out into a place in the community to make it more convenient for mm -hmm. the tens of millions of people who rely on library uh, broadband. So fundamentally, it totally fits with the purpose. The current readings uh, uh, talk about specific library properties or school properties, as the case may be, that qualify for uh, uh, E-rate subsidies. So our starting premise is that uh, libraries are, will be, soon will be, uh, gigabit uh, uh, fibered facilities, and that, uh, that uh, a, a tiny piece, uh, you know, a few percent of that bandwidth dedicated to supporting a few remote uh, Wi-Fi hubs around the community is, is incidental and under the rules, uh, incidental use is eligible. The equipment mm -hmm. is, a, is a different category, and while there is new money for uh, Wi-Fi uh, equipment, it's uh, designated for within the property. Now, what constitutes a property uh, is, uh, is not entirely clear, so a bookmobile looks like a property, and... A library outbuilt is, is a property. Uh, what other kinds of places would, would be logical as properties? Even without that, even just in the, in the strictest definition, uh, the hardware is relatively inexpensive and getting cheaper in the way of hardware. Uh, mm -hmm. This is still early stage technologies TV white space, so uh, we're looking at it in terms of <clears throat> early stage Wi-Fi. You know, it, it got a lot better and a lot cheaper pretty fast. So mm -hmm. uh, a hotspot, uh, you know, the equipment in a remote location, which is the, the TV white space uh, equipment, radio and antenna, and then a, a regular Wi-Fi access point plugged into it, that's how you create this remote hotspot, is uh, 800 uh, maybe $1,000 today. A new company in India has just come out with a, a chipset that uh, is dropping those prices more than 50% uh, today. So at, at say, $500 for, a, for a, a, a library, you know, community hotspot in a public park, we don't think that's a barrier even without any E-rate subsidy. So mm -hmm. we think it's entirely compatible in spirit, and then we think it's entirely affordable uh, today at even these early stage prices. So the spectrum is free. There's no... There's no fees, there are no permissions, there are no towers, there are no wires. It's just, you know, buy the, buy the units and plug them in somewhere that's within range of, you know, some number of miles of the base station, and you're, you've got a connection. So the, the spectrum is not going to change. It's, it is free, it's going to stay free, and the equipment's just going to get cheaper and we predict it's going to follow the same path that 
that Wi-Fi has followed in libraries where now, you know, 98% of all libraries offer Wi-Fi. That didn't happen overnight, uh, but it okay. is a natural way to leverage uh, the connectivity that the library has. Okay, and this one, we're going to have to wrap this up. But thank you very much for all of your insights, and we expect to talk more of this in the next year or so. So good luck, and uh, let's let's see where we go next. Well, thanks a lot, Craig. It's been a pleasure. All righty. Thank you very much. Thank you, and uh, to our audience, thank you for being here, and we'll have another show soon with uh, more great, uh, great details on broadband uh, in, in the communities. Bye.